Well, hello there, darlings, and happy birthday to us. We have reached 20 episodes, and today is the season final. I did make a beautiful cake to celebrate, but Reggie managed to find it, and yes, you guessed it, it's all gone in one gulp. Oh, he's such a naughty boy. Oh well, I'm off on vacation next week. One week in Transylvania, in beautiful Romania. I have some cousins that live there, so I'm off to visit them. Now, before I get packing, here's your first story. This happened on New Year's Eve day of 2019 to 2020. I was celebrating the end of another year at my house with three of my friends. My dad was out at a friend's party for New Year and my younger sister was at a sleepover as well. We were in the living room waiting for the cookies we'd baked to be ready eating the raw leftover cookie dough, watching Netflix, being teenage girls with no cooking skills for anything. We ordered a shit ton of pizza and fast food from the local pizza shop. So when someone knocked at the door, we originally thought nothing of it. I mumbled a comment about delivery people not knowing what a doorbell was and got up pausing the TV and paid the delivery guy. I went back to my friends and we started to dig in, still watching the TV. And then this is the moment I don't think I can forget. Everything was so vivid. The door to the living room was shut and the curtains closed. The TV was at near full volume. We were all intently focused on the season's final, either throwing comments out at the TV or just sounds of surprise. This began just as the final fight of the season started. My best friend Ali had just shouted, You're kidding me, he can turn into a wolf? At the same time, an aggressive bang came to the door, but we didn't fully register it because of Ali's shouting and the loud soundtrack. I paused the TV, waiting a minute, when another bang came to the door. I got up, curious who it could be, but no one should have been coming to the door. I stuck my head out of the living room, seeing a man stood there, and because I'm a teenage girl at home with only two other teenagers, I obviously didn't answer it, but stood by the doorway, able to watch him to make sure he left. He didn't. He banged on the door rhythmically. Now my friends and I are very different people. I get very paranoid and stressed, whereas they are more relaxed. They told me to sit down and that he'd leave. But then the door handle shook aggressively. Call the fucking police, I said quickly. My phone was upstairs in my room charging, so Ali called 999. She was speaking with the operator when everything seemed to slow down. The man had thrown a rock at the window in our door and the key was in the lock to get out, so I'd have to go towards him. The police told us to find a place to hide in the house that had a lock, but none of the rooms had a lock. The lock on the bathroom door had been broken since we moved in, but never had a reason to be fixed. So we ran out the living room and into the kitchen, and I had two ideas. One was get a knife in case I had to defend myself, or at least just threaten him. Two, get out Storm. Storm was my dad's dog. He was a security dog and ex-police. So I grabbed his lead and got him out of his dog cage. I clipped on the lead, grabbing a kitchen knife as I went into the backyard with my friends. The man opened the door to the yard where we were all stood. I tried not to look scared, but this man had to be about 40, long greasy blonde hair and blank blue eyes. 
They seemed not to have any emotions behind them, but his mouth was in a twisted grin. He was holding a hunter's knife. Storm was barking loudly at him, but the man didn't falter. I was hesitant to let Storm off because I didn't want Storm to get hurt. Come closer and I'll let him off, I shouted at the man, who just kept walking. I backed away to stand next to my friends. The second I let Storm off, we get the knife, I whispered, and my friends nodded. Ali still had the operator on the phone, who said anything we did could be classed as self-defence. Go, I ordered Storm, letting him off the lead. Storm lunged at the man, knocking him backwards, causing the knife to drop, but not too far away. Storm had a tight grip on his arm. I ran over, kicking the knife away from him. This went on for maybe 10 or 20 minutes, when the police finally came and I got Storm away from the man. My dad was called and came straight home to make sure we were okay, which we were, luckily. We found out that the man was a convicted sex offender who had moved in two streets down and had seen me walking Storm and our other dog a lot. I'm so thankful to have Storm and that my dad taught me how to deal with difficult and dangerous situations because I don't know what would have happened if we'd have just sat watching TV. To begin, my mom was around 12 the first time she encountered him. She described him as tall, wearing a black cloak and a black expressionless face. Well, if you could call it a face. This incident happened at my mom's aunt's home. My grandparents were at work and my great aunt would watch my mom. Their apartment was laid out as follows. You enter the front door into the living room. The stairs are directly to your left and there is a 250 pound handmade wooden framed couch along the same wall as the stairs. My mom was coming from the kitchen and as she stepped into the living room, she saw this dark figure wearing a dark cloak come through the front door. He saw her immediately and put his finger to his lips as if saying, shh. He started up the stairs. As he did, he waved his hand. The huge couch, which my mom's 15-year-old cousin was sitting on, was suddenly flipped over on top of him. He was trapped underneath with the couch on his back. As far as I know, he didn't have any severe injuries to his back. No broken or fractured vertebrae, but he had a fractured rib and a broken finger. I know he had constant back pain and had to learn to walk again. He spent a year in a wheelchair while everyone in the family was wondering how this could have happened. My grandma is a very religious woman, as are most of the older people on my grandma's side of the family, so when my mom tried to explain, no one believed her. That was her first experience with this demon, who eventually would make himself known as Seth. Years later, in 2009, I'm 15. It's December, around Christmas, when I started to notice something wasn't quite right with my mom. She was vomiting up everything she ate. She was sleeping or lying in bed for hours and hours each day. She had finished college in the spring and was working in a doctor's office, and later as a surgical technician for a heart surgeon. So when all of this started, she was going to work less and less. Eventually, she quit, and that's when things really started. It was late one night, around 11 p.m., and my mom was really sick. She had been lying in bed all day, just staring at the ceiling. 
My dad went in to take her some dinner, and all he said was she didn't look right, so he decided, after coaxing my mom into the car, that he was taking her to the ER to get her checked out. I was in my room, in the basement, listening to music, 99.7 our local rock station, and finished up my book I had gotten from the library that previous Friday. I was sitting on my bed, which was directly under the little rectangular window. I thought I heard gravel crunching around my window, but when I stood up and moved my curtains out of the way, I saw a black face wearing a black hood. His face wasn't like a regular human. It was expressionless, almost like it was made out of clay. I screamed and fell backwards onto my bed. I rolled off my bed, hiding next to it only to realize my 13-year-old sister was upstairs alone. I peeked out of my door into the basement. To my left was the basement door leading outside, and to my right the laundry room and the stairs that led to the first floor of the house. Once I realized it was clear, I crawled to the stairs and slowly started up them. The basement door was open, and since I didn't see her hear anyone upstairs, I went up into the kitchen. My sister was standing there with her hands on her hips and said, why are you screaming? I'm up here trying to watch a movie. Before I could respond, I heard gravel again. I ran to the kitchen window, which was directly above my bedroom window, and saw my parents pulling up the driveway. Once they parked, I ran outside, telling my dad about the strange man that was peeping in my window. He pulled out his pistol and started to check around the property, telling me to stay with my mom. I want you to know my dad is an army veteran. He spent about a year in South Korea in 1997. Despite not being in active duty, my dad still had some PTSD from his time in service. To this day, my dad still sleeps with a gun under his pillow. When he came back, he told me he couldn't find anyone, that the car coming up the driveway must have spooked him, and he ran off. I knew that it wasn't a man. It just had to be something else. I was really into horror and the paranormal, and I still am, but my dad brushed it off and just helped my mom into the house. Did he know who it was that scared me so badly? Did he know about Seth before my sister and I did? When we got my mom settled in and into bed, it was super early in the morning, maybe around 3 a.m. When I sat down and started to fill my mom in on what I had seen, she just brushed it off and told me the same thing my dad had told me. Your dad and I must have scared him off. I didn't understand then why they weren't calling the police to report a crazy man staring into people's windows, but I eventually calmed down enough to sleep. The next day was Sunday, so my dad got us ready and took us to Sunday school and went back home to try and get my mom to come as well. I told my friends in church that there was some creep staring in my window last night and they instantly asked me the same thing I had asked myself that night. Why didn't your dad call the police? Monday came without incident and as I was going to my second to last class of the day, I was told my dad was here to pick me up. At this time, my sister was still in middle school, and we went across the street to pick her up. When we got home, my dad sat us both down and told us the news. My mom had gone to the doctor today, and they had found stage 3 terminal cancer in her lymph nodes, both kidneys and her lungs. They had given her just a few months to live, including going through chemotherapy and radiation treatments. 
My mom had been fine four months before. She was working, working out, doing everything a strong woman would be doing. She had went to the doctor just four months ago, and now she's lying in bed sick and dying. I went into my parents' room and just cried with my mom for what felt like hours, but was only about ten minutes. After I had calmed down, she told me the story about when she first encountered Seth, and that she believed it was him I had seen the other night peeping into my window. Months went by. It was summer now, and my mom was still with us, clinging onto life like she was stranded at sea with no water or food. She was more like a zombie having random days where she was a normal person. We had our pastor come out and bless our house, along with one of his friends. Yet, as it usually goes, the disturbances got worse. I was seeing him now, out of the corner of my eye, watching me while I did my homework, read, or whatever I was doing. When I looked, he was gone, possibly off to terrorize my mom. My mom would say he would stand in the corner of her bedroom, telling her to murder her family, kill herself, and to stop fighting him. This was constantly going on. She was eating like a toddler, eating no more than a few bites of anything she had put into her mouth. I know this seems like normal routine with individuals that have cancer, but it was different. As time went on, about eight months after the cancer was found, she wasn't any better, but she wasn't any worse either. Eventually, our pastor told us he had phoned a friend who ran a Pentecostal church. Our pastor had simply told his friend that he was sending some people to him to meet and see if his church was a good fit for us. He didn't tell him our names or why we were going. That Sunday, we packed into the car and made the two-hour drive to the church. I had only ever been in our small church before. When I entered the doors, I was blown away by how many people were sitting in the pews. We quickly found seats just as the preacher was starting. He went on for a few minutes, welcoming everyone back and started the service. To explain Pentecostalism, it is a Protestant Christian movement that emphasizes direct personal experience with God through baptism with the Holy Spirit. They can also speak in tongues, which was really odd to me at the time. Basically, remember in season one of Supernatural when Dean gets electrocuted and they go to that church and the preacher healed him? That is very similar to how things go in a Pentecostal church. As a teenager and until I was 18 or 19, I was a Christian, and as an adult, I'm an agnostic theist. Continuing into the regular service, he stopped and said something that still haunts me. He said, there's a person here with cancer, severe cancer that has affected their lungs and kidneys. A man stood up to hopefully be healed, but when he said, I'm sorry, sir, but this person also has cancer in their lymph nodes and has been deemed terminal. That is when I looked at my mom, who was just sitting there, staring up at the preacher. She stood up, followed by my dad. She said he had described her condition to a T. Welcome, we've been waiting for you. Our pastor hadn't told him anything. Our pastor is a very trustworthy man. He had never steered us wrong, and despite none of our family going to church anymore, we are all still very close. He officiated my sister's wedding, and will do the same for my youngest and myself. So, we walked up to the front of this church, a couple hundred people staring at us or smiling at us. I had no idea why we were there, not until after all of this. I guess my parents didn't want to scare us. We arrived in front of the preacher. I don't remember much. 
what I do remember has stuck with me and still makes me very uncomfortable. Two women came to stand beside my sister and I. They wrapped their arms around our shoulders and just stood by us. My mom knelt before the preacher and he put his hands on her, with my dad about eight other people behind her. I asked the woman next to me what they were doing to her and she asked me how old I was. I was almost 16 when this went on. I told her and she said that they were exercising a demon from my mom, that everything will be fine and she'll live for a very long time. I started to hear this growling coming from the group across the altar near my mom. I looked up to see her, only to find something that wasn't my mom. Yes, that thing had her hair, body, and clothing, but it wasn't her face. Her face was distorted with these huge dark eyes, my mom has blue eyes, and a malicious smile. I could only assume the thing that had made my mom this way was finally showing his true face as he fought the people praying against him. People had their hands in the air, speaking tongues, and people started to put their hands on my sister and me. As someone with severe social anxiety and claustrophobia, I was freaking out just from that. I heard screams, growling, and my mom's distorted voice spouting profanities at everyone. I don't know how long this lasted, but when the screams and growls stopped, there sat my mom, who was seemingly fine now. I ran to her, happy she was okay. We sat there for a few minutes and everyone started to clear out. The preacher, his wife, and family came to speak with us and invited us to talk more about what had happened over dinner. We agreed and followed them to our agreed-upon place for dining for the evening, a pizza hut. I still think this part of the story is the funniest and most amazing part. Imagine being exercised and going to get pizza after. That dinner was the first real food my mom had ate in a year. She ate a large pizza to herself, along with salad, wings, and breadsticks. She says that it was the best meal of her life. This was a Sunday, and since we had quite a bit of a drive, we said our goodbyes and headed back home. The next day, my mom went to one of her appointments that week. On Mondays and Fridays, she would go in and get scans done to check progression. The previous week, she had appointments on both days. When they brought her scans back to show them to her, they showed no signs of cancer. There was not even a speck of cancer anywhere in her body. Thank you for listening to my story. My hand was shaking when I was typing this. It still gives me the chills to this day, but I'm just so thankful my mom was healed and we never heard from Seth again. In my younger life, I would have said that I'm a runner, though younger is relative since I didn't really start running until I was in my 30s. I had tried running on and off throughout high school and into young adulthood, but never really figured it out until I was a little older. Better late than never, I suppose. I've done loads of 5Ks, several 10Ks and a few 10-milers and a handful of half-marathons, so it felt for quite a long while as if I were in a perpetual state of training for the next running event. At the time of this experience, I was working in a doctor's office I usually left the office around 6pm and during the days of late sunsets would run outside after work. However, the closer we got to the autumn time change, 
the less time I had for outdoor evening runs. I had a four-mile training run on my schedule that day. I lived about 25 miles from my workplace and I knew that if I took the time to drive to my usual running haunt, darkness would overtake me before completing the run, so I decided to check out a trail closer to the office that I had never run before. One of the trailheads is at a park only a few minutes drive from the office, and I knew I could finish the mileage before dark. I pulled my car into a spot near the athletic field, grabbed my keys and handheld water bottle, and used the walk to the trailhead as a warm-up. Once on the trail, I took note of how few people I passed. Many of the trails I ran at the time were highly trafficked by walkers, runners, cyclists, even skateboards and rollerblades. So it was a nice change to not need to dodge a group of mothers walking shoulder to shoulder with their double wide strollers, a group of speed cyclists running side by side four across or the extended family out for a stroll in the pleasantly cool autumn air none of them having any concept of trail courtesy or etiquette. In short, I thought I'd found a little gem of a running trail. During the first half mile, I had passed only four other people and one dog. So I was startled when I approached the one mile marker and I got an uneasy feeling, an unnerving feeling. At that moment, the wooded area through which the trail had been winding opened up to a clearing. To my right, I could see vehicles speeding along the highway nearby and beyond the clearing straight ahead of me was another slightly denser wooded area. Every step toward that wooded area carried me into a deepening sense of weariness. I thought back to the people I had passed, trying to remember some little telltale, any sign, facial tick, body stance or sideways glance that may have subconsciously set me off. But I didn't come up with anything. I was determined to finish my run, but couldn't squelch the increasing uneasiness. So I did the only other thing I could think of. I prayed. Father, if this feeling is unwarranted, take it away from me. But if it is warranted, you had better stay right by my side until I get back to the car. Then, as clear as if someone was running right next to me, I heard the words, Turn around. Yes, sir. I did an immediate about-face, forward sprint back to the trailhead, effectively cutting my anticipated four-mile run into a two-miler, and I didn't slow down until my car was in sight. I'm not entirely sure I stopped when I grabbed the handle, wrenched the door open and threw myself inside. I couldn't leave that parking lot fast enough. I don't know what was lurking in that wooded area that day, and I'm okay never finding out. Fast forward about a decade. My body is much older, and I must now deal with the wear and tear I inflicted upon myself as a younger person. As such, I don't run nature trails anymore, but I can hike them. Vinton County is a picturesque parcel in southeastern Ohio, home to Hockling Hills State Park, as well as several other parks and nature preserves. Old Man's Cave is a popular tourist spot, though I prefer the lesser-known Concours Hollow Nature Preserve, just past Lake Hope State Park is the Moonville Tunnel, an old railway tunnel that took supply trains to the pioneer town of Moonville. Over the last several years, the rails of the old track have been pulled up to make way for a hiking trail. The hiking trail is not part of any park system, but is its own entity, maintained by a group of volunteers and outdoor enthusiasts. The tunnel itself has a reputation for being haunted, 
so of course I wanted to check it out. I finally decided to make the trip last fall. I had bookmarked all kinds of information about the trail and the tunnel on my computer and I spent an evening or two beforehand planning my route. As I was making final plans the night before, a feeling of unease came over me. I chalked it up to psyching myself out about visiting a legendary haunted hotspot alone. Yet, even as I convinced myself there was nothing to be frightened of, I couldn't shake the uneasy feeling, even as I lay down to sleep. It's over an hour's drive to this corner of the state from where I live, so I left early on that November morning, anticipating around a nine-mile hike. I would get to the trail, head nearest to the tunnel around 8am. The sun would definitely be up by then. As I left the urban area behind me, that uneasy feeling crept back into my mind. It's nothing, I told myself. You've just worked yourself up in the planning. Relax. But I couldn't relax. There is a two-lane scenic byway with a state route number that takes you past Lake Hope State Park and onto the one-lane rough country road that leads to the tunnel. As I turned off that main road, that uneasiness slammed into me, and the further I drove away from the safety of the main drag, the more the sense of dread welled up inside me. You're overreacting, I told myself. You psyched yourself out and you're anticipating something that just isn't there. But I couldn't shake it, and as I drove closer and closer to the tunnel, the dread turned into panic. I could almost hear an audible voice that was not my own saying, you don't belong here. I tried to shake it off. I didn't drive this far to be scared off by my mind playing psyched out tricks on me. But over and over again, as I continued to drive further to the main road and closer to the tunnel, I heard the voice inside my head saying, you don't belong here. Finally, I reached the tiny pull-off that served as a parking area for the trail ahead. As I gathered my water bottle and hiking stick and made it out of the car, I heard the voice again, more forcefully now. You don't belong here. My husband is not happy with the fact that I hike for hours alone on trails so remote that there's no cell service, and every time he brings it up, I remind him that I'm a red belt in Taekwondo hike with a five foot five solid wood walking stick that I'm not afraid to use and I am confident that I can stun and run with the best of them. And yet, due to this unshakable, eerie feeling, I grabbed my canister of pepper spray for good measure. Then, I walked up the short hill to the trail. Once at the trail head, I looked down a small embankment to the tunnel, maybe 150 yards from where I stood. It was nestled into a cliff wall, covered in graffiti, and looked foreboding. Through it shone on the entrance to the tunnel, the very early morning sun had not yet cleared the tall earth wall to shine on the opposite side, leaving it in complete darkness. I couldn't see the exit of the tunnel or what lie beyond. All of a sudden, the voice inside my head started yelling, you do not belong here, get out of here now. Deciding that my life was far more important than a hike, I all but ran back down that small hill to my car. I jumped in, turned the engine and drove out of there at a speed that was probably not any safer than the trail might have been. As I drove away from the tunnel and back towards the main road, a feeling of relief washed over me. I relaxed for the first time since the night before and I decided to hit a different trail that day, one that I was far more familiar with 
and knew others would be travelling. Again, I don't know what was lurking inside or just on the other side of the Moonville Tunnel that day, but once again, I'm also okay never finding out. Hi, my name is Leroy, and I've been a police officer for almost a couple of decades. This particular incident happened about five years ago. It was a normal day with routine patrols until the evening. As the evening grew, the dark slowly crept up. I was sitting near the entrance of my precinct, near the parking lot. My car's engine was still fired up as I had just come back from duty. I was waiting for my coffee to arrive because my shift still had a couple of hours until I was over. I got dispatched two times that day, which, according to me, was a pretty fine day as I usually get way more duties than that. If only I knew that it was all going to change. The routine was pretty normal for me, and I was used to it. We got usual calls for thefts, violence, traffic emergencies, fires, and sometimes homicide. But the call we received that day was the one that led to the weirdest and creepiest incident I've ever reported to, and that's why it still sticks with me. The call was not for any usual emergency. Actually, the call was for nothing. I remember sitting in the car while sipping the coffee when the phone rang. The dispatcher was on duty was my friend Jerome. I used to call him Jerry. Jerry was a quick learner and was very good at his job. We usually never got to listen to the calls firsthand as we had to be ready to leave for the scene, but for that one, I did get to experience it firsthand. I picked up the headphones to listen to the call while Jerry started talking. He asked, 911, what's your emergency? But he never got a reply. The line was empty for a few seconds, and then Jerry tried again. Hello? Is there any trouble? Are you okay? Can you hear me? We were used to being prank called and even to the empty phone lines, but it was a rare sight for the pranks to happen at this hour of the day, as it was close to midnight. We even had instructions to hang up on a call and not to keep the line busy for too long if the other side doesn't respond. So Jerry had to hang up the call, but without wasting time any further, he started looking up the location. If we don't get a response from the caller, we usually check up the location of the call for any potential emergencies and do a wellness check, and that's what we did. We radioed for an officer to reach the location, but none of the officers were close enough to the address compared to us. So naturally, I had to be dispatched for the place and received the whereabouts in the computer in my car. I was on my way to the location through the quiet roads, which were normally busier than this, but that day were a lot more empty. The only voice I was hearing was Jerry's voice through the radio. He confirmed that there were no previous incidents from the location I was heading to, and keeping in mind, I should be safe. I wasn't even stressed about the potential encounter before this information, but now I started doubting my gut. It was as if Jerry had put a seed in my head which quickly spawned a tree of doubt into my consciousness. I like to blame that on Jerry, but deep down I think I had the same thoughts as him all along, which only surfaced later on his statement. As I traveled a little farther, I saw a pregnant lady crossing the dark road. I could tell 100% that she was pregnant by the size of her stomach. It's like she appeared out of nowhere. She didn't stop walking when she saw me, and it was too late. I slammed on the brakes, but I hit her with my car. 
I immediately got out of the car, but I couldn't find her anywhere. Not a trace. It was as if she was never there. Now, I'm used to driving at night, and I normally don't get sleepy enough that I ever hallucinate, but this felt like a real-life nightmare. I checked under and around the car, and even switching on my torch went into the woods at the side of the road to see if I could see her. I checked both sides, calling out and waving the torchlight over the forest trees and ground, but nothing. My heart was pounding, but I had to carry on. So trying to shake off whatever it was that had just happened to me, I traveled the rest of the way to the location trying to block it from my mind and think about anything else at all. Finally, I reached the location. It was a house in a pretty normal-looking neighborhood. I parked the car and wanted to bust into the place to check for any potential dangers, but I decided otherwise. I instinctively knocked on the door, and in a moment, a lady opened it. She was wearing a robe, which was usually worn while giving birth to a newborn. It was similar to the one my wife had worn when she had just given birth, so I remembered the look of it. It was clear that the lady was pregnant. I said, I'm Officer Labine. We got a call from here. Is everything all right? It was clear that the lady was as clueless as me, as she looked at me and with confused look replied, Oh, I think you're mistaken, officer. I didn't call for any help. I said, ma'am, I'm pretty sure we got a call from your place. I think somebody else must have dialed the number. She cut me off mid-sentence and tried to assure me, You're highly mistaken, officer. I live alone here. There's no one else who could have called. I didn't hear her this time. I wasn't listening anymore. My focus had shifted from her. I was trying to glance behind her in the hopes of finding someone, and then hopefully save the lady from anything she was going through. I had handled domestic violence cases before, and this one looked similar. The victims didn't know how to properly communicate with law enforcement, and I found a good way of dealing with it. I told her to wait, and she has to sign something for me. I returned to my car and took out a piece of paper and wrote, Are you being abused? Are you in danger? Nod for yes. I handed over the paper to her. She read it and shrugged and said, I already told you, officer, I'm all right. There is no danger. Thanks for your concern, though, but I still think you must have been mistaken. I replied, All right, then. Well, I'm sorry to bother you. And with that, I left the place. Suddenly, a thought crossed my mind. I encountered a pregnant lady on my way up to the location. One could argue that I was thinking about saving the lady, but there was no way I could have known that lady at the location would be pregnant. I disregarded it as a coincidence and proceeded on my way back to the precinct. A few minutes later, I was in my car driving back to the precinct when I got a signal on the radio about a second call from the same location. That was the turning point for me that day. The night had already begun, but that was the point from where all the extraordinary stuff started happening. I wasn't able to experience the second call firsthand, but Jerry told me about his experience, and I still shudder thinking about the possibilities relating to it. He recounted the incident to me about how he was sitting in front of his computer when he received the call and how there was still nobody on the other end. He this time waited for a couple of minutes before disconnecting the call in the hopes of finding a conclusion for the call, but still coming up empty-handed. He again sent the location to my computer for me to go back to check the place, but I didn't need it. The place was still very fresh in my memory. I stopped and turned the car around to head back to the house. I was once again on the same path, but now I dreaded it even more. It shouldn't have been so scary, but something about it kept me alert and thinking about it still gives me chills to my core. As I drove along, 
I suddenly heard what sounded like a child screaming and crying, crying for help from somewhere near me. I stopped my car and the scream kept getting louder and louder. I checked everywhere around the car, swinging my torchlight but couldn't find a child or anyone. There was no one anywhere. Realizing that it might just be my mind playing tricks on me after the lady incident, I got back in the car and kept going my way. The child's screaming came again, and this time it sounded like it was coming from the back seat. I checked my rearview mirror and swung my head around, but there was no one there. I started to panic, as this voice sounded like it was coming from the inside of my car. It was really starting to freak me out. I drove a little faster, and as I increased the speed, the crying got slower and slower, and as I would slow down, the child would start howling once again. It was as if someone didn't want me to slow down. So not ignoring it this time, I stayed on it at a higher speed, trying to stop the crying when it soon did. I reached the place once again and parked the car at the same spot as before. I was careful this time and made sure that I didn't make any noise so that I wouldn't alert anybody. The imaginary child wasn't crying anymore. I was starting to think that it was just an illusion of my brain as I was consciously worrying about the pregnant lady. I slowly approached the main entrance of the house, but it was stopped dead in my tracks, due to something I just can't explain. I saw a dark, shadowy figure, or maybe it appeared to me like that, I'm not sure. But I am quite sure that someone was there, peeking from behind the blinds by the door. It quickly moved out of its place as if it was alerted by my presence. I could sense my fear rising, and to keep it in check, I placed my hand on my holster. I was now ready for any encounter that could have taken place, but it still didn't mean that I wasn't terrified of the outcome. I again wanted to barge in, but my instincts wouldn't let me, so I knocked on the door and waited for an answer. A few seconds passed by, which seemed like an eternity, and I decided to knock again. When I still didn't get a response from the house, I called for backup. I should have checked the surroundings first for any potential threats according to the protocol, but the thought of keeping a pregnant lady in danger for so long just didn't sit right with me. Or maybe she was the danger. I couldn't have been sure with that one, and did the only thing that would have provided me with some explanation. I tried to open the door with no hopes of getting it to open, but to my astonishment, the door quickly and quietly opened up. My mind was in a constant state of pressure, and it made me act quickly to ensure the lady's safety. I wanted to be more patient, but the situation demanded otherwise. I went again against my will and called out for the lady. I tried one more time, but something in me knew that I wouldn't get a response. I again acted out of character for me and walked rapidly to check the insides of the house to search for the lady. I didn't try very hard because as soon as I reached the kitchen, I saw the lady lying unconscious and cold on the kitchen floor. My first instinct was to take out my gun and keep it clocked for any potential threats. Once I was assured that I was alone in there with the lady, I quickly tried to wake her up. I felt for a pulse, and she was breathing, but she wasn't responding. I tried to wake her up with water too, but it didn't work. I was just on my heels trying to make a decision when I heard someone walk through the front door. The backup had arrived. My fellow officers made sure that the surroundings were empty and there were no signs of anyone breaking into the house. Once we were sure that no one was there, we took the lady to the hospital. 
It turns out that she was facing some very severe pregnancy complications, and if we hadn't arrived at the location on time, both lives could have been lost. I was relieved at the conclusion, but in the back of my head, I was still very restless. I couldn't figure out why we got two blank calls from the same location, and the calls weren't even much time apart. My colleague came up with a theory that she must have dialed the call and then at the same time fell unconscious. While it made a little sense to me, it still didn't explain the first unanswered call and the fact that we found no phone or cell phone with the lady when she was lying on the ground. I was desperately longing for some answers, but I had no place to look for them. Once we returned to the station, I was there talking to Mike, the fellow responder with me on duty, and the one who came with backup. I was there explaining to him about my weird experience. I said, hey Mikey, what do you think about last night, the weird lady incident? He quickly replied, I'm not sure, what do you mean about it, but yeah, the experience was a weird one for me too. I recounted, I mean, the call came in twice and both times with no answer. I was the first respondent on the site, and then I saw something that I, I don't know. Mike looked pretty tense at that point and was like, yeah, and then? Well, what happened? I continued, I don't know. I just thought someone else was there too. I could have sworn. I, I swear I saw someone peering out of the blinds. And they were even parted, which was a weird sight for me because it wasn't parted the first time and I'm not sure she would have opened them that late. I paused for a bit. The look on Mike's face told me that he was waiting for me to continue, so I did. I told him, We even checked the place and found nobody. The house had only one entrance. I'm also pretty surprised at the fact that I acted so differently. Mike asked, Differently? I replied, Yeah, it's hard to explain, but I don't think I was in control of myself last night. I was doing things against my will and even wanted to stop doing it, but something kept me going. I'm satisfied that the lady's safe, but still, the incident I recount, they're very hard for me to digest and I desperately want some answers. Mike listened to my little rant and suddenly his expression changed. It looked like he realized something and it hit him pretty hard. He said, man, that's real weird. It's not just about your encounter. I felt something too, which made me feel really strange. I was surprised to hear that. He unfolded. You remember when you told Pete and Roger to check the surroundings? I nodded. He continued. I was there helping to load the lady in the ambulance. As soon as I closed the ambulance's doors, I felt a brisk pat on my right shoulder. It was like someone was congratulating me or for us for our great effort to save the lady. I can't explain it. And oh, something else happened too. When I turned towards my right to check for someone, there was no one there. But then I very clearly heard someone saying, thank you, directly in my left ear as if they were grateful to us for saving her. And again, there was no one there. I don't know if it makes sense and I didn't quite believe that it happened to me, but now I'm hearing your experience. It gives me chills. I nodded and didn't know what to say. I sat down and Mike went to his office. I can't explain it. I've never experienced anything like this before on the job or at any time in my life. I'm a pretty big guy and I attend a lot of different cases, but this one had me scared. 
I guess some things can't be explained. So I'm in my early 20s and female. I moved out on my own for the first time about two years ago. I haven't had much to do with my neighbours and I have always been slightly uneasy to the fact that no one around here is looking out for me. If anything seems off, no one would notice or do any investigating to make sure I'm alright. Last year, I noticed a man constantly walking his dog in the grass area behind my home. This isn't unusual to see. It is a common area for residents here. His dog is super cute and my cat liked to play with it through the glass door out back. They would just chase each other back and forth and put their paws up the glass and such. Real cute stuff. Well, one day I was outside and his dog came running up to my porch with glee to say hi to his kitty friend. This is the first time I actually spoke to this neighbour. His name was Mark. So Mark seemed decent enough and we got along just fine. We started hanging out pretty often in a short period because I'm a smoker and he was letting his dog out all the time and it was summer so we ran into each other quite often and would spend an hour or more after work most days talking. This lasted for a couple of weeks. I gave him my phone number and was happy to have a friend in my complex. I will say he was clearly very interested in having a romantic relationship with me. I was very honest with him that I wasn't interested in either at all and had to tell him this quite often. Frankly, I was getting rather irritated that this came up several times every time we spoke. He rather quickly was trying to get me in his house. From the first time we talked until the last, he offered multiple times every time I saw him. I always said no and blamed it on me being COVID cautious. He quickly got tired of that excuse and invited himself into my home as well. I always said no. One day he came out while I was smoking with a bottle of wine and a couple of glasses, saying I had to try this stuff because it's delicious. I instantly noticed that the seal is broken. It was a screw cap bottle, but doesn't seem like anything was drunk. The bottle was filled to the brim, which I also thought was a little odd because usually wine isn't filled to the tippy top like that. So he pours a couple of glasses and doesn't drop a beat in telling me to take a drink. I felt very uncomfortable, but didn't want him to feel like he was being accused of anything when he's just trying to be a nice friendly neighbour. After all, he poured himself a glass of this very same stuff, right? Well, my mama still raised me better than that, so I totally faked a sip and said it was good. After this, he again would tell me to take a drink. I told him I don't really drink, so I'm pacing myself but did say that he noticed I hadn't drank any and to please go ahead. He didn't reach for his glass right away, but in the middle of speaking, he reached for his cup and knocked it over, spilling the wine onto the grass. He brushed it off rather quickly and told me it's my turn to drink now. I said, but you still haven't drank anything. You spilt your drink. Pour yourself another glass. I don't want to drink alone. So he did. He still didn't drink anything. He did tell me a few moments later to drink mine. I told him that he needs to catch up, and we basically just kept going round in circles. He reached for his glass again, and guess what? Spilled it again. Wine is all over the grass now. Then he told me to drink. At this point, I'm done. Too many red flags are screaming at me to get the hell out. I'm honest with him that this seemed really sketchy, and I didn't trust the drink because he's refusing to drink any, but is way too eager for me to drink mine. 
He told me that he was just clumsy, taking it slow, because he doesn't drink a lot. But he has seen me have friends over taking shots and drinking beers and wine, so he knows I'll handle it better than him. Yet another red flag is raised, so he's watching me, is he? I think it's important to mention that our complex is huge. He used to work here and knows the maintenance crew. And he doesn't live particularly near me. He is about half a block away from me and cannot see my windows or yard from where he lives. And he has a few different common area yards closer to him that he could use for his dog. So I told him I'm flat out not drinking anything because of how this all seemed. He once again pours himself a glass and once again spills it. There isn't much left in the bottle at this point. I pour the remaining wine in his glass and tell him to drink it with me on three. We raise our glasses. To my amazement, he actually takes a drink and I spilt mine onto the grass. He comes out about two nights later while I was smoking and instantly starts complaining to me that I wouldn't date him or have sex with him and he doesn't know why all girls are like this. He starts getting really loud, shouting at me, asking me what the problem with him is, that I won't do these things. I told him that I had been honest with him since I had met him, that I'm not interested in that, and that it isn't him specifically. I'm just honestly not interested in that from anyone right now. He still shouted at me and started complaining about his ex and her dog. Yes, her dog. Then proceeded to tell me that he used to abuse the shit out of that dog and went into detail about how he wouldn't feed it or water it because it used the bathroom in the house and how he would kick it really hard. I'm horrified at this point especially considering this whole time he's telling me this, he's playing fetch with his little dog. His dog always seems scared of him. And I had even pointed this out in the past, and he said that his dog's previous owners were abusive, so he is just very scared and distrusting. The dog was always very excited to see me, though, and would cuddle up with me and stay by me, so I always thought I was extra special. But with that knowledge, I just think the poor dog is currently in an abusive household. I was so done with this guy that I just cut him off and said I needed to go because my friends were waiting for me. He had sent me several messages of gibberish when he is outside. He will just blow my phone up with, hey, hi, and then a load of letters that don't make any sense. It will just keep going. He has texted me telling me that he knows I'm home because he has seen me walking around or that he sees my car in the lot. He will throw his dog's toys on my porch, I think trying to get my attention to come out because of the cute dog. He will just stand outside my porch for hours. It's all cold and rainy and snowy these days, so it's even creepier. I think in his mind, since I'm a smoker, I'll come out eventually. Silly him, though, because I just go out front when I see him out there. He said several things to me before the wine fiasco went down that were red flags. I figured it might be a language cultural difference, though, because English is the third language he has learned, and America is the third country he has lived in. I guess the moral of the story is, trust your gut. He is still bothering me, and like I said, we only spoke and hung out a few weeks in the summer of 2020. My last message from him was last night. He asked me what he had done wrong, and if I felt disrespected in any way. I have not spoken to him since he screamed at me for not sleeping with him, sandwiched with admitting horrible animal abuse. I thought about answering his text with the brutal truth about how twisted and creepy he presented himself as, and how uncomfortable he made me feel, but I didn't want to give him any ideas on how he should improve. Stay smart, folks. Don't drink things people give you if the seal is broken. He was definitely trying to drug me. I would love to move since I have become uneasy in my own home environment, but moving is expensive, and it's not something I can afford at the moment.
And that brings us to the end of this first season. I do hope you've enjoyed these creepy true stories, kitties, and we have plenty more coming up. See you in a couple of weeks' time for season two of Deadly Debbie's Creepy Files. <laughs> no, Reggie, you couldn't fit in that suitcase if you wanted to. Oh, why didn't I get a regular cat? <laughs> <laughs>